Hey guys, Craig here. How's everybody doing? Welcome to episode 36 of the Bass Lessons Melbourne Player Profile podcast. Um, this week we have Mr. Phil Stack from Thirsty Merc in the interview seat. So um, stick around for that. It's a really interesting conversation. Um, but first off, I've got a couple of exciting um, announcements to make with relations, well, with regards to the podcast. Um, I've been very fortunate to secure um, some sponsorship um, for the podcast. Few companies that I um, that I work with, um, whose products I use, have um, agreed to jump on board and help out with the with the running costs of the podcast. And first off, I want to give um, a massive shout out to the guys over at FBase because um, they're the first to first to come on board. Um, and and help me out with this podcast. So, uh, as some of you, as most of you probably know, um, I play an F bass VF five, um, which is a, an incredible bass. It's my go to axe for nearly everything I do. Um, you can see it on a lot of my um, videos on Instagram and on YouTube. <clears throat> um, and F bass have actually been um, hand making basses since nineteen seventy eight. So they've got a lot of experience under their belt. Um, everything's made uh, at their factory in Canada. Um, and as well as um, the vintage inspired instruments, they offer the modern fretted and fretless designs of the BN and um, AC series. Uh, and they're always um, coming out with, uh, with new little twists to their current designs. So. Um, if you're in the market for um, a new base and you're thinking about going down the kind of custom road, then I highly, highly recommend getting in touch with Marcel Forlanato over at FBase um, and have a good chat with him about what it is you're looking for in a base. So thank you very much to FBase um, for coming on board with me. And the second um, company that I'm um, are helping me out uh, is is a fairly fairly new um, outfit called Bass Face Strings, which is essentially David Gillia, um, a bass player who lives up in uh, Queensland, I think. Um, and what he's doing is he is importing Ken Smith strings, so um, they're importing Master Series stainless strings, Master Series um, nickel strings. Uh, and the burner series, and these are available in four, five, and six string variations. Um, I am currently using the, I think it's the nickel burners, and they're awesome. I put them on the F base, and straight away I was sold. Um, they sound great, and they feel good, and uh, and they last. So, if you're looking to try something new in the string department, or you know you like. Um, like just changing it up, then I recommend getting in touch with uh, Bass Face Strings. You can get them um, on David's personal website, which is davidgaleamusic.com forward slash bassfacestrings, or you can find them uh, on Facebook and on Instagram. And all you got to do is just drop him an email and, uh, and he'll sort you out with some, some strings. So thanks very much to David and Bass Face Strings for, um, for helping out with the, the podcast. Um, very happy to be associated with these guys. They're um, awesome at what they do, 
and uh, yeah, and so it's quite an exciting time for the for the BLM podcast. But back to business. So our guest today is, um, like I said at the top, it's Phil Stack, um, who is probably most well known for his uh, his work with Thirsty Merc. Um, they've been around for just over fifteen years, and um, I caught up with them in Melbourne when he was here for their their fifteen year anniversary tour. Uh, it was a really interesting chat with Phil about, um, you know, uh, his bass journey, but also the evolution of the band, the evolution of the music industry in that space of time. Um, and also, we talk about his um, his other side, his dark side, <laughs> um, where he's um, he, he plays a lot of jazz, he plays a lot of upright bass. And he's actually played with James Morrison for, for nearly 20 years, so... Um, he really knows what he's doing, does Phil. Um, it was great to sit down and chat with him. We recorded this at his hotel room. If you if you watch the video on YouTube, you'll see there's a beautiful view of some of the Melbourne skyline. Um, and yeah, so it was um, it was great to, to pick his brains about some things. Um, we chat about lots of different stuff. So I, as always, I would appreciate uh, any feedback you guys might have about the podcast and also just sharing and maybe leaving a review on on iTunes or whoever it is that you guys get your podcast that really helps get the word out there um, and help get these players stories heard by more people and that's really the whole aim with this is to to let people um, really know a little bit more about the the, the bass players that I'm, that I'm talking to instead of just maybe what you hear on the album or, or what's available on YouTube so I'm trying to get some some depth to to their story anyway here we go episode 36 Phil Stack How are you all doing? Um, this is Craig here from Bass Lessons Melbourne, and today for the player profile interview, I'm joined by Mr. Phil Stack. Good day, how, how are you, man? Good to see you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. Um, you're in town with Thirsty Merc. Yes. Doing a bit of a 15 year anniversary tour. Yeah. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. What's, what's well, going on? we've been to, yeah, we've been together 15 years as a band. We've been playing together longer as in some individual members. Ray and I have actually known each other for 20 years. Right. Um, we were playing jazz things before that, and uh, yeah, this was an opportunity to kind of play some of the old songs from the first record, and mm-hmm. actually also kind of put it out there to the 
um, universe, I mean Facebook, to uh, <laughs> to find out what people wanted us to play that we, had, that we hadn't played for years, you know, because we, we've sort of done four albums now, so you, you get that opportunity to uh, play some um, rarities as well. Yeah. We've been playing a few B-sides, which is kind of wacky, you know. Yeah, I mean, you have to have, kind of have to go back and relearn. We literally, yeah, absolutely, you know, and we're not very good at rehearsing, so... <laughs> So it's been a, a bit of homework, or a little, yeah, no together work. <laughs> just sort of in the car, have a quick listen. <laughs> um, it's an interesting band, and uh, it's it's a beautiful group of humans that yeah. kind of somehow work together. And um, we, yeah, it's fifteen years, and it's been well received. It's probably been one of the most um, just seemingly popular tours of the last few years for us. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it never gets as big as it was when you start. You know, the first few albums and sure, um, but it's certainly been the the if you, if you, something about stickability. I think you just hang they're still around and we're and what, so what, what's the audience like? Is it people who do you reckon have been with you for fifteen years or people who are new to, to the band? Or uh, you, you get a, you get a bit of both. But you you also get kind of those things that are nice. Well, not a nice mark of time, but uh, I let you know of your mortality and age. Um, so we have, you know, kids who are coming who are, you know, now 18, and they were like, oh, you remember you listening to with our parents in the car. That's bizarre. When, when car trips, and so they yeah. would come with their parents sometimes, you know, who, you know, so you get 18 to 60-year-olds coming. Yeah. Um, so mixture of, mixture of everything. But you, I think we may be at this stage somewhere in between the still semi-young but uh, old enough to be some nostalgic value with sure. some of the songs where you were in the early noughties or mid 2000s yeah. and stuff like that so people are getting off on, on that, that a bit I think. it was an interesting time in the music industry as well that it really was kind of breaking point I guess with the whole digital age was mm. pretty much the start of the 2000s I guess yeah it was it was very very different and it was a almost like a teetering yeah. Uh, point of album sales and things changing and the you know the internet taking over but the internet was obviously all uh, around but mm. social media wasn't and that's a very different thing we're very pre-social media so yeah we sort of uh, obviously you know you have to reinvent, reinvent ways of communicating yeah um, so you know if you look at our Facebook thing it's not gangbusters like some people might think you know it might be I don't know what it is but 30,000 people or something and yeah. instead of millions of people um, but it's a very very loyal following sure and um, oh yeah, we, we stick around but we're still doing new music I mean we we put out an album two years ago called Shifting Gears and that was our first independent release ever yeah. um, really um, besides our first EP you know and so that was very liberating and empowering for us yeah and um and we found out that, you know, there's many different ways of doing things now. So um, we kind of did that the same way anyone else would do. And um, that's a couple of years. That's a couple of years ago. And this is kind of the first tour after all of those tours for shifting yeah. gears. And how was it for you going back and checking out those baselines that you wrote 15 years ago? Were you like, what was I thinking? Or like, oh, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Well, bit of both. A bit of both, yeah, exactly. Um, I try not, I try not to check it out too much in a sense because uh, I, know, I know how um, 
things work with this particular band and, and, and a lot of rock rhythm section playing, you know, things, things that I liked about it and um, the way, the, the, the approach to recording, which was playing live a lot and yeah. playing spontaneously and keeping most of it. Um, not really re redoing, especially on those early albums, the first Tim Merck ones. Also we did the first album all to tape, to a 24 track tape, and there was no, uh, we didn't go, you know, the digital to the very last second. Um, so, so that actually, uh, I, I like to keep that in my head, even while replaying them now. I don't want it. I don't want to check them out too much to the point of, um, you know, having to memorize what I did because it was improvised at the time. So, so it, even between takes, it would have been slightly different. Yeah. So in the spirit of it, you know, uh, you know, you definitely, we, I definitely checked it out again, and it's like, oh, that's a different guy. You know, of course, mm. it feels like yeah. it. Um, and to honor uh, a nice and um, sort of, yeah, uh, I guess balance of honoring it and and actually realizing where it came from in the first place. So yeah, uh, and th that that's always been my concept with with some things. You know, is is that it's is that it was well, it was improvised. You know, mm. to a certain degree, those first times. I mean, listen, listen, listen yeah. to great James Jemison. I you guess know. the, the you know. One of the things to take into consideration, I guess, is that it was improvised, but then it became crystallised. Yes. And that became what was known as the song. That's the balance, and yeah, that's the so balance. You, so if there's bits, you know, obviously there's bits where you go, okay, I've got to play that. Yeah. But then the rest of it is kind of open kind of thing. Yeah, it's more a concept of like, the first verse is something like this, and then there's space for that, and the second verse, and then... Or just the riff that we all got to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, cool. Because when, talking about, we were talking about Rocco earlier. Right. Um, and in, in Melbourne, I play in a kind of Tower of Power tribute band. Oh, great. And I, I brought it up to Rocco when I spoke to him. Yeah. I was like, you know, I've got this band. And he goes, well, my one piece of advice is don't play it like how I played it, because even I don't play it like how I played it. Yes. Wow. And I was like, oh, that's really, that was really liberating. Cause, that's... You know, pouring over these transcriptions yep. and trying to get all these things. And even the transcriptions aren't that accurate, I've come to discover, you know, when I actually listen to him, like, that's not actually what he does. And you hear him playing what is hip now and it's completely different yes. to the record and stuff. Yeah. So that was like, oh cool, I'm gonna take the ethos or the That's the vibe very of it important. Yeah. And then and then try and make it groove as well as I can make it groove. Because yep. there's no point in me trying to play his bass line and it not grooving as well as if I was playing that bass line in my style and it grooving harder. Yeah, and it's also not not necessarily great for your own musicality to be conceptually thinking that that's how something has to go yeah. to, a, to a certain degree, yeah. Yeah, so you, you guys are pretty f um, pretty free on stage? Yeah, night after night. We also play with different drummers. We have uh, Mick Skelton's our, our main guy, but he's yeah. also um, involved in the Baby Animals and he's in that band, right. so he has to do, do that. Um, uh, this tour we're playing a lot with Pete Drummond, who's a wonderful drummer, like amazing, drummer, amazing technician, and, yeah. and um, so every time we have three or four guys, we're playing with three different guys this whole this tour, mostly with Pete, but uh, also Tim Firth, who's a wonderful, um, most you know for jazz playing in Sydney, and and Mick, and we we play differently, and certainly as a bass player, I I sit even I even sit the time differently with you know it's not like I go. I'm playing like this. Yeah. You just come with me. It's a, it's a it's that it's an give and take. Thing. It's a, it's a give and take thing, and you play 
you play differently and maybe less or more aggressive com- compared to cool. who you're playing with. And that's the same songs, the same material, yeah. same set list sometimes, and that's changing. So that, that's actually great for us because that, that keeps us on our toes and we, and we like the variance of that. So, yeah, uh, I was going to say, that, it'll keep it interesting for you yeah. Yeah, to some extent. Yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to be Phil Stack, the bass player? Yeah, well, I, I was like playing guitar, like a lot of people do, a, a bit, teaching heathen. myself. Heathen. The heathen, yeah. <laughs> Not for long, you know. Yeah, okay. I think I realised... You saw the light. Well, yeah, a little bit. It was, it was, I was never going to be a guitar player. I, I, I was playing guitar and, and probably more piano in a way, teaching myself Beatles songs on piano as a kid, okay. you know, literally a kid. And... Um, I wasn't a particularly early starter to sort of uh, formal training. I played a bit of clarinet in the concert band and, and drums in mm-hmm. school, school stage band. And then literally we're going to f- form a band, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I'll play bass because I actually had this weird, I actually had a dream one time of like that, that's, you know, it was almost, it's almost Prophetic. the bass god came to me and said, you know. In a very low voice. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you play the bass. And it was this whole thing. And, uh, and I sort of went, I, I, I need to be a bass player. That's calling for me. And, and so we started the band and I was bass player and I, I took to it quickly and I had uh, went and bought a $300 through neck 24 fret, like, Big piece of wood. Easy thing to start with. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. And a Paul McCartney bass transcription book, you know. Okay. And I'd checked out, I'd already been sort of teaching myself to play by ear a lot, which, which is obviously an ongoing process for the rest of your life. And and then that's how that, that's how that started, that love affair with it. Um, and and then the band was writing, it was, this is the grunge era, I guess, by yeah. then. This is like... Um, 89, 90 when I started to do that and so we formed our band and it be, became a bit of a you know the Seattle tribute to the Seattle sound yep. but we always started with original music from the day one I mean we we, we played we jammed on Hendrix songs and we jammed on uh, the stuff that was going on at the time so Nirvana sound yeah, yeah. Gun Pearl Jam and all that um, but we, we started with original music which which would have sound we've been influenced by by the time um, and it wasn't until I'd nearly finished high school that I got into the double bass and that's actually where my love affair with the bass as a soulful thing as part of me, I would say, started. It wasn't until then yeah. in that sense. It was a bit more functional. I loved it, and um, but it was more about songwriting and using... It was a tool to... It, yeah, a little bit, a thing. little bit. And to be honest, the electric bass is still a little bit... Um, I love it. I love it more now, but yeah. I, I, it's still a tool as a whole picture of a song. Whereas if the double bass actually resonates your, your with my heart and soul, yeah, I, I think so. I've, I've played it. I actually played it a lot more in the last twenty years than electric in a sense of um, yeah. it's a solo instrument. So I mean, it's it's grunge. What made you pick up double bass? I found one in my high school's uh, another high school's. Uh, Storeroom that had been sitting there for years online. You went. Well, I mean, you can't really sneak out a dual bass, can you? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, it was kind of a little bit like that. And my dad drove me over, and I think I've got permission. Yeah, I think we've got one at the other school. And and I'd um, I was getting interested in, in jazz at okay. the time, so that's really what it was. It was like the you know realizing that 
the double bass is, is you know, was the sound of the jazz that I was listening to. I'm not, I'm certainly still not saying it's the only bass for jazz or anything, but it, but it was, and I was intrigued, and mm. and I got I got really tried got stuck into makeup for last time, you know. Okay. Yeah. Private lessons. I got classical lessons. Cause I was in a country town, you know, so I was limited. Okay. I, I Where got, was this? Sorry. This is in Dubbo, in New South Wales. Okay. So I had classical lessons off a lady called Sam Harvey, who was there. Who I think she'd gone through the college, so she gave me those two Samantha books, which I've still got. And if I have students, that's the two, still the two books I tell them to get. Yeah. And so and she so she got my left hand kind of <coughs> position really going, you know, that, that big C kind of thing. Mm. And um, she told me like it, it was like holding an orange, yes. you know. And I, I remember the being feeling that was, uh, you know, for the first time that uh, I'd, I'd never really had electric bike lessons, I don't think. So I felt like, okay, this is resonating with me. And, um, so as far as formal training, that was, that was the first year. And then I, the next year I went to the Con Conservatorium in Sydney and I'd, uh, I'd only been playing that for about a year. So I must have, yeah, got, right. I got, must have really got stuck into it. Yeah. And um, that was the... Yeah, and then I had lessons off Craig Scott at the conservatorium for okay. the couple of years that I was there. Yeah. Mm. And so the the kind of bass players or jazz you were checking at the time would be. Uh, well, I went and had a lesson off Craig Scott, and I didn't wouldn't know much. You know, it's we're talking, you know, pre-internet, pre-anything, and also Dubbo was like, if I wanted to order a, you know, I'd order a Stanley Clark record in, you know, the, the live seventies one, you know. Yeah. And uh, that would take six weeks to come in, you know, and I'd treasure it. You know, like yeah. as you did in those days, you really did treasure a record and you would check it out properly. So I, um, you know, I was into that, and then I went and had a lesson off Craig Scott, and he said, "Right, so let the double bass now. Right, so you have to check out Ray Brown, and you know, and Sam Jones, and and all these guys, Paul Chambers, and all these guys." And so I got, I get the end of the lesson. I got my money out to pay him, and he said, "No, you take that money and you go down to." These second-hand record stores cool. at the time. So it was, um, uh, you know, I'm not showing my age by saying that it was all vinyl. Then these are, you know, these were relics at the time. <laughs> it was like mid '90s, and um, but he just said that well, that was a cheap way of doing it, and and uh, made me go and buy all these Ray Brown records. Ray Brown was the first guy that I really fell in love with. Mm. You know, and I think that's a good a good way to to start in that sense. Well, it was weird. I was like Stanley Clark and Ray Brown, you know, and they sound very different. Um, yeah. Because probably coming from the electric bass side of things, it was that. And and then, but I fell in love with Ray Brown's sound and um, concept and musicality and just that that sound, that groove, that thing that makes you want to move and dance, you know. Yeah. And um, and yeah, I got into that, and I'm and still checking that out. Electric bass kind of just kind of fell by the wayside for no, a few years? Not really, not really. Okay. It's, it's, it's always been both. I think when you're in, in your early 20s or late teens, you always think you're going to pick something and pick one and mm. uh, pick an instrument or pick a style. And um, so I, like anyone, thought that. And I just uh, never did. I just still loved playing rock, original music, funk, soul thing, the, yep. and then jazz. But uh, and then I've gotten better at actually combining the two and just being one bass bass player. I hope in all of that, you know, being yeah, just myself in all of it, bringing yeah. the jazz to the rock and bringing the rock to the jazz, and everything in between. Are people so, phoning at you in both camps, or so? No, not really. No, because because then you, it's it's 
you know, it's yourself, it's your heart and soul, it's all, yeah. it's the, the, your own grit that, um, yeah. that you can put into it. Um, so I'm glad I never really necessarily stopped doing one or the other. Mm. I mean, I, I, when I was at the conservatorium even, I was, uh, I was playing in a rock band. I had a rock band then I got together from high school. So 10 years before that, you know, well, we formed my rock band, um, which was called Drown, and then 22, some suitable grunge names there, you know, early 90s. Optimistic. Yeah, yeah, optimistic, that's right. Um, so I, they'd moved to Sydney and we kept we kept it going, even when I was at the con, but I was getting really interested to jazz, so I didn't have a lot of time for that, but we, we kept it going. Mm-hmm. And, and that, act, that rhythm section actually became Thirsty Merc years later in 2002. Okay. A lot of people don't know that, but that's actually how that uh, came about. So, um, but it was just an educational process as well, you know, and I never stopped liking doing the other, the other music. <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't sort of become a jazz snob or something. It was, yeah. um, like I said, an educational process that I, it opened up a harmonic world to me. Um, yeah. That was great for songwriting as well, you know. Yeah, so, um you were at the con for what, three, four years? Two years. Two years. Yeah, I would say that for two years, I, that's all I ever intended to do. Some other friends stayed longer and yeah. did four years, but I, I was fortunate enough to meet um, great trumpet player James Morrison, multi-instrumentalist, um, and I don't mean the uh, British one that you might know, the UK one, <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, the Australian strange, one. Yeah. Um, and. I won a scholarship that he gives out for young musicians when I was 19. Okay. And that was my second year of the con. And then the same year he needed a bass player for his band. Just so called me up and basically got a full-time gig with him. And cool. that, that really was quite, um, well, not full-time in the sense that I didn't do anything else, but it was w- weekly a, we had it's gigs. It was a big gig, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a big gig, as, um, especially for a 19-year-old inexperienced. Yeah. Um, Big learning curve. Those few years, I mean, it, like, yeah, yeah, that's like, huge. Two years at Con and then and then playing with James Morrison. It's huge. I mean, it's it's it's, it's a huge time. Take. <laughs> it's a huge time for anyone. Those two years when you leave school, anyway. Yeah. Because you're just doing music full time. You're not having to go to maths and science classes. It's you know? a, yeah. But um, certainly was for me because I started to go on the road towards you know, the second year of the Con. I'm like, well, I'm not going to stay around at the Con because it's designing it's supposed to be preparing me to do exactly what I'm doing now yeah um, I better learn more on the road and yeah be diligent and they were you have some some good guys in the band to, to learn from yeah uh, that at that stage James's band was James's brother John on drums um, Peter Zogafarkas on guitar who you may or may not know he sort of dropped out of the scene a few years ago he's a, he's an amazing musician okay. all over uh, and Emma Pask singing and uh, Darren Percival, um, who some people might know as Mr. Percival, who does this looping thing, incredible vocalist. Um, and Blaine Whitaker on sax was there a lot as well. And then some interchanging drummers after that. Okay. Um, so yeah, was I was I was the young guy and yeah, sorry, <laughs> I'm not the young guy in the band sometimes now, but uh, yeah. often now, but. Um, uh, they were they were yeah, they were some great years and I played with James and I, I still play with him sometimes uh, twenty years I mean yeah. yeah and so was that all upright or a mix that was mostly upright but okay. uh, James being James likes to um, do projects that to yeah. push himself as well so there's been some 
things that are electric-based projects, or I'd play electric-based on the same gig, um, some gospel music and some funk soul music. So I would play, yeah. And I think he liked the fact that I played, mm. you know, electric as well. Did you ever play fretless on the? I rec more recently okay. got into the fretless a bit. Um, just just got a. It's one of the only new instruments I ever own. Was a Fender a fretless um, jazz bass, you know, oh, yeah. that I've got that I, that I love playing with. It's got flat wounds on it, and yeah. um, so no, not not so much uh, to replace the the double. More like a, yeah. a different thing. Just yeah, so color. usually my P bass. That I would play and uh, as part of the set. Yeah. Yeah. So you you've been a P bass guy, kind of from apart from the twenty four fret. <laughs> you played the big hunk of one star. Yeah. What was that? Come on, was that was an Ibanez or something? Yeah, West Tone. West Tone. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool with these weird switches and you you know it's like yeah. you wish you still had it. You know what? What I sell like a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> what was it? You know? Um, <clears throat> I think the guy who bought that might have taken the frets off or something. Mate, they're fretless. Oh, was it was it one of the kind of natural wood ones that kind of looked yeah. like an alembic kind of thing? Yeah, it was. So the Stanley Clark and you went, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I bought a now I bought a I bought a Yamaha thing, like a new Yamaha thing, uh, and then uh, then my first Fender bass, which is a. 90s jazz bass and I bought it in the 90s you know like okay. a 95 jazz bass that I bought in 95 kind yeah. of almost you know yeah no it's vintage <laughs> yeah exactly right um, so which I loved and that was my main bass for 10 years until I got the P bass and then I got that sort of P bass thing the P bass itch so that, many it, people it just happens to so many yeah. of us you know we start yeah. off playing the six strings and the jazzies and, mm -hmm. the, and then and then you get that P bass and you're like Oh, this makes things a lot easier. Yeah, in a lot of respects. It was that low mid grind and kind of, that really sat well with me, and it sat well with me as a as a double bass player too. Yeah, but, you know the simplicity of it, where the tone comes from here well, the, mainly. The, the one I've got as well is a 1978 one. It's a real heavy piece of wood, and I can cane it if I, you know, <laughs> you know I. Um, I, you know, I'm not necessarily the most, the lightest player on it, so, but yeah. Is that obviously, do you reckon that's from the yeah, opera? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of it, so that takes it all, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you, I mean, you listen to Stanley and, and Patatucci play mm. electric and you can hear that, Yeah. the, the digging in, Yeah. I, I think, comes from the, the upright. Yeah. You were playing the upright kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So you didn't have a, a, a jackal thing? He wasn't really on your radar. Uh, I I loved to listen to okay, it, yeah. and um, he's one of my favourite musicians. And but I mean, back when you were kind yeah, of no, starting no, out. it was Ray Brown. It was uh, you know my uncle had given me some weather report things, um, and I loved listening to it. And, you know, it was Stanley Clark and 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 then then all the jazz guys. You know, Dave Holland and and, and a really heavy Dave Holland phase. Yeah. Um, so, but as far as electric bass, no, I never, I never really went into that to try and do that. There's um, guys that do that much better than me, and, and um, so uh, in more recent years, maybe even, maybe even a little more than yeah. other times, because you're like, oh, I haven't, you know, really. You're coming, you're coming from it. I don't know from a different perspective. Back then, it's kind of like I need to be like that, or you, you feel that pressure to whatever you're checking out. You kind of that's what you got to aspire to be. Whereas now, I think you're probably at a stage where you can just. Accept something for what it is and enjoy it, and yeah. from what you want. 
Well, I mean, like, yeah, you never, you never, you never stop thinking, learning, and you, and you, you keep going back as well and reminding yourself. Like, yeah. you know, I went back and listened to Paul Chambers the other day. I was like, oh wow, Paul Chambers in the center of the center of the time so much, and the, the lines, and he's playing the gut strings and the way he would and consistency. Mm. Um, so you know, I remember Craig Scott at the con telling me to try and be someone for six months and be someone else six months and then uh, I'm not sure how as a student I went with that completely but it was Scott LaFaro was a big influence still is um, yeah so the Jack I think was just more it's also more his spirit I mean mm. you know like it's it's the same thing as trying to get um, inf- yeah, influenced by uh, other things in music I mean you know I, I, I write music um, based as much on the closing credits and the feeling of a movie as I do on listening to a great album, you know. Yeah. And I think it's, in a way, it can be more authentic that way because you're not actually getting off on a, a tonal thing or that you think you're going to copy. It can, it can sort of um, be a springboard to something a lot more original sounding if it's not um, not a musical thing that you're influenced by. Yeah. And um, so with the, the Jarko thing ought to be more just his, his spirit and his hardcore. How hardcore is that guy, Sam? Um, yeah. Yeah, not just because of his hard living, but it's, it's an un- a compromising musician. You see him on stage; it's like he owns it so much, and it's. And I'm like, look, that's command, and that's yeah. spirit, and that's authenticity, authenticity and authenticity. Th- th- those yeah. those those things more than the actual way he plays. I'm like, that's sure. him. I'm not going to do it nearly as well as him. So yeah, and you know, people people connect with authenticity. I think in honesty, yeah. in performances, Ab- and, and in songwriting. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So you've been you've been writing pretty much since you started started playing. Yeah, yeah, and, and like playing, it's a like a um, skill set you've got to exercise, and you've gotten better and better at. Yeah, and uh, hopefully I'll get better and better at it. I I was always writing for our grungy kind of band because our, our singer wasn't really writing, mm-hmm. and so um, I'd sort of write the songs and he'd sing it, and then. And then so you're writing lyrics and, and the music yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I'd collaborate on some lyrics mm-hmm. um, with our guitarist, who was a very, very skilled um, musician in general. And um, yeah, and then, and then later on, I'd collaborate. I mean, Ray and I would collaborate on a few things on the first record, the first Thirsty Merc record, in, when that came out, 2003. Um, and then since then, I've gone on this long slow journey of uh, skill building of that of, mm. of songwriting and I've almost uh, you know changed concepts on it and I write from the piano a lot now that's most that's actually mostly what I play at home okay it's the piano now and I've done that for years um, and it's one of the first things, you know, because you have a piano at home, at, in, the, in the family home, yeah. you know, that my dad had texted written the notes on. Um, that, yeah, that, that was one of the first things I played, and, I, and that's something I've loved to have gotten better, that I've loved in getting better at. I wouldn't call myself a jazz p- piano player. Yeah, or, uh, but as a tool for writing. Yes, a tool for writing, and I, and I perform with it with vocals and that, solo vocals. and. Oh, wow. And that's kind, kind, that's kind of new, actually getting out there and doing that. But um, yeah, it's but it's something I do every day, and I think about all day. Yeah. And I do for a few hours a day, and um, 
yeah, so that's been that's been an exciting journey, and that continues to be. That's one of the most exciting things I do now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of those things that's never ending, right? There's, yeah. You're never going to write the song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's always something more. I mean, so yeah. are you kind of are you composing, you know, film scores or jazz songs? No, or? it's mainly for projects. So I've got I've got another band called House of Orange, which we've been together for as long as Thirsty Merck's been around, um, but we've, because uh, of life and careers and we've uh, lived in different countries and um, we've been geographically challenged mm. to sort of, um, to do a lot of touring, but there was a period of a few years there we did a lot and put an EP and an album out, so I'd write particularly for that, which is a th- raucous th- three-piece uh, Jimi Hendrix meets the police meets the Beatles or something okay. um, you just go and listen to it and, you view, and make your own mind up about what it sounds like but it's pretty proggy yeah. in a sense of are that. you singing in it? yeah and I'm singing in that and playing bass and playing yeah bass I play this like mostly this Gibson EB2 1968 thing that's had a neck break and it's pretty thunderous kind of yeah. psychedelic bass you know Full on, and, uh, <laughs> um, so I've been writing, you know, writing for that. Um, and in the last couple of years, I've been writing for like this Phil Stack solo project, which is piano based, um, stripped back a lot of it. Some of it's with some strings, some of it's solo piano, um, you know, song based sort of stuff. Mm. So I put out a EP called Lap Around the Sun in 2015, and that was. Um, that was stuff I did all recorded at home mostly, okay. or, or entirely almost. I think um, had a couple of friends play drums and guitar on it, and I played. I ended up playing some guitar and drums on it as well. So you got a bit of a studio setup. Yeah, I've got home? a studio set up at home, um, and yeah, I always mix elsewhere. I'm not a mix engineer, so mm. I'd never do that. Uh, most you know, I, I would take it somewhere and put it back through an SSL desk or a Neve desk it through someone who's does that yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't like looking at music so I don't record on a computer well I record on an old hard disk recorder and I basically use it like a digital tape machine cool. that's been working for me for the last 10 years it's, it's out of date but it's uh, I have to bounce off web files and you know yeah and I that you know that doesn't do email, you know, kind of thing. It's it's you're not going to get messages on it. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a good workflow. I don't like. I've got a there's a screen display on it that I just use for peak levels. That's the only yeah. thing I do. I don't. Is like it a Mikey or a? It's a Roland Twenty Four BS thing, whatever that is. Yeah. And uh, you still burn off discs with files, and it take ages overnight. You know, but. Um, it works for me still, and I like I said, I, I'd rather go to the studio then, and then they load it into Pro Tools. And if you do want to do any editing, you can do it there. But I don't want to see it. I don't want to look at music. I, what does music fucking look like? I mean, it's just yeah, interesting. Because uh, so much of today's music production is looking at the screen. I don't understand it, and yeah. I, I, it doesn't. Yeah, usually it sounds like that to me. <laughs> to be honest, a lot of the time, yeah. there's lots of there's there's lots there's look there's good. I did, Good pizza I did, and bad pizza. Yeah, I did, I, did, so. I did one album um, a year or two ago at um, a studio in Melbourne, The Avery. I don't know if you know The Avery. No. And that was to tape. Yeah. Um, and there was, I think there was maybe Pro Tools running as well, I'm not sure, but mostly to tape and no screen. Um, and it was such a different experience going in 
playing live, coming back in and listening and not looking. Yeah. You know, because you, if there's a visual element there, it's definitely going to take up some of your attention. Well, it's going to make you make, possibly, not saying all of it, make you make some decisions that aren't based on what's actually going on here, mm. you know. Yeah. Well, what, what, That's a cool concept. What, what, you know, what does the waveforms look like? Well, you don't want to be peaking and all that, but, it, you, yeah, look, yeah. if you're doing certain types of music, you need to, but I'd prefer to do whole takes most of the time and, yeah. you know, I do some little drop-ins with a foot switch or something, but I couldn't edit them again. I had to do them at a right time or go or go back and do it re, and re-sing the backing vocals for the second chorus, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And then, you know, that's what the Beatles were doing. It would have sounded different uh, a little bit because it does build in the second chorus. I mean, you know, and, it's, and that doesn't mean just turning it up. It means mm, yeah. slightly opening up a sound, a vowel sound or, or um, you know, Certainly, in, in the but the ba- the bass part, it's like trying to do f- full performances of it. I mean, it's it's that's the way conceptual playing. Yeah, and that's the way we found. Like I said at the beginning, it was the way we found the the Merck stuff work, and we tried both ways. You know, we've tried going and redoing like all the bass or whatever, and then just going back and going. You know, the one I did with the when I was playing with the drums was, you know, at the mm. time Carl was our Carl Robertson, a great drummer, was our drummer and. We would sort of A B it, and was like, "That's just got vibe for days when we we're playing together." And um, okay, I played a wrong note there. I fucked that up. So let's. Um, yeah. Can I say fuck on this? Or? Absolutely. <laughs> 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 can I say fuck? <laughs> Don't say shit in front of the B A B Y. So I am. Um, and uh, you know, I, you'd, you might fix that if you if it was an actual error. You know. Yeah. But if there's just something that's getting a bit hairy, it's like, oh, it's cool, it comes back. And it was, um, it was a good, it's a good lesson to learn. Uh, you know, vibe over precision all times. That's my mm. motto with, with rhythm section playing especially. Um, so I'd rather hear it that than the other way. You get better at kind of doing both as you go on, like you get better at everything, you know, mm. at being able to... At, at, do it with precision as well as vibe, you know. But if you're going to choose one, it's vibe over precision. Because I tell you what, all the processes of recording, it's like, what is it? Writing, rehearsing, you know, pre-production, tracking, overdubbing, mixing, mastering. All these things make it slicker, and yeah. they 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 just do, and that's okay. But it just makes it brings everything together so much that it can become this homogenized nugget rock that would oh I remember jumping around the studio to those rhythm tracks and now it's all oh you know yeah. so if, if, in, in some ways if a rock band especially or even in a rock band playing song, pop songs which is kind of what Thirsty Merc is yeah. really it is um, the more spunk you put on it on the beginning it's, it's, it's always it's always going to be still too tight by the end so yeah. don't worry about it so much you know just vibe over precision have you have you had experiences in the studio with Thirsty Mark where it's, you feel it's been overproduced by the end of it yeah look I mean you know I mean I love all our records and they've been done differently the first two albums were done here in Melbourne um, in Param with a great producer called Lindsay Gravina who's a bit of a 90s grungy icon um, he also did those first Living End re- uh, records right. which are the big ones um did some early stuff with Jet. Um, he's done all the Magic Dirt records, so he's not an obvious choice for what you would think Thirsty Merca. But 
Are you, you guys know? pretty rocking? We're, we're pretty rocking, but with sort of songs or something, mm. pop songs in a way. And uh, at the time, we didn't know what we were doing. It was the first record, so we don't know. We don't, you know, it was more rocking on the first record than anything. We had this term, rock Sinatra, so it was kind of like, um, so there's songs like My Completeness, which is track one off, um, um, track one off the first record, which Ray and I wrote together. This is the time where you cut to that, bit of that, is it? I don't know. Yeah, a little snippet of that yeah, video clip from um, LinkedIn. Yeah, which is kind of rock chords sung with Ray crooning, kind of, you know, because you know, Ray's a great jazz musician and, and mm. uh, uh, over rock beats kind of thing. Um, how do we get into that? Where do we get? We Overproduced. Overproduced. Yeah, so that, that, was, that, that album was all done to tape. So certainly not overproduced, but it becomes tighter and more together as it, as the processes those processes go along. And then we did slideshows with Lindsay, bit slicker again. Mm-hmm. It usually happens with a band, you know, you're older, a bit more ballad playing, a bit more acoustic guitars in the yeah. record. That's cool. And then then a those more, a bit more check this out. Bit, yeah, well, less raucous yeah. bass playing, like more. You know, everyone has sort of gone through breakups, and you know, it's the okay. breakup record. But, but that's cool. That's part of the journey of the record, and we had some great songs off that. Um, Twenty Good Reasons was off that, and uh, the Hard Way, which is rocking but still a bit, uh, which a motive life story. Which one had um, summer, summertime. Summertime. Or? That was the first one. Right. Okay. No I click to, track, by that, the way. I had no, to learn that a few weeks ago for a gig. Did you? Yeah. No click track, <laughs> rhythm section, <laughs> as it is. And then obviously you have yeah, no right. vocals and stuff like that. Yeah, you don't notice that it's got, you know, oh. it's click track and all that, those sort of things. And we didn't do everything without a click track. We, we list, we go, is, does this one going to sound better with or this one without? And inevitably, as things go on, you're using more click tracks, you know, and all that kind of thing. But that's, a, that's an interesting thing about that, a little tidbit mm. about that song that people might not know. Um, and. Yeah, and it's, it's just playing together and getting the swagger and the swing mm. and not the right amount of swagger and swing in the um, in the playing, you know. Ding, 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 you know, get, just getting the right amount. Um, and then, yeah, so we, we went on to slideshows and and then, and then some of that was mixed in LA, you know, so it's starting to get slicker a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third album was um, the LA album. It, as Lindsay Gravina, our producer in Melbourne, said, oh, on the third album, because he talks like that, <laughs> you'll go to Classy Town. What, what are you, what's Classy Town, Lindsay? Like, oh, you'll probably go to LA and do it with one of those slick guys. And that, I'm, I think you should, kind of thing. You know, he's been part of our whole journey. So he prophesied that? Kind of, yeah. yeah. Like, he was, he's cool <laughs> with it. He wants us to always, like, go to Classy Town. Anyway, interestingly enough, we went over there and... And uh, did that, and we had a bunch of great songs, and it was going a bit more groove-based anyway, you know, mm-hmm. and bands like Maroon 5 had come out, and, you know, we'd actually toured with them and, at the time as well. Cool. And um, we thought, and the, uh, the label thought uh, at the time, because we were with Warner Music then, that uh, that would be the right thing to do, because uh, Ray was playing keyboard a lot more, uh, and it was a lot more groove-based. And maybe, maybe the climate of music of pop music at the time was a bit more like that too so it was like 2006 or yeah seven? Uh, that was later that was slideshows was 2006 this was 09 okay 10 uh, and we went up actually doing it with Maroon 5's producer Matt Wallace right. uh, who's actually best known for doing all Faith No More's records cool uh, so, so we did big the, big bass tone yeah well yeah well, yes but uh, interestingly enough yeah 
I mean, not my favourite record mm. of us, but not because of the song, just partly the production, the LA thing. I'm glad we did it, you know, but looking back, it's like, okay, well, we did the LA record. But did you have some fun? We had, we had a great time. We did, we recorded Sound City, you know, we, cool. uh, before Dave Grohl had bought that, the desk for a million yeah. bucks, you know, before it. So I think we're in there in one of the last years, certainly the last year maybe that it was open. And um, and I remember because that was the only Neve desk that had never been moved apparently in the world, so they say. Um, and uh, he. It sounds more grounded. Sorry. <laughs> it sounds more grounded. You know that Neve desk. <laughs> well, it's it was yeah exactly yeah so well you know never mind it being recorded there Fleetwood Max rumors being recorded there so there was a lot of history in that studio. Um, and so we tracked the thing there, and um, then we went across the street to um, Matt Wallace's little place, you know. And, and look, Matt, Matt did a great, great job, but by, again, that, those processes I was talking about, um, <clears throat> they make it uh, a lot slicker, possibly, than I would do it myself. But, you know, you respect the new producer that we don't know as well, yeah. and you, you go with what they're... Uh, you know, suggesting. So that's the kind of one I redid, probably redid a lot more bass parts than I want to. Right. You know, yeah. for example. Um, and that's okay. That's how that record came out and that's how that, that's how that sounded. Um, but you learn, a, you learn a lot about your own intuition and what you... Mm. Uh, and it's always hard to, you know, hand over your musical baby to somebody else. Yeah. To realise the vision, you know. It is. I think. Most of the stuff that I've been involved in, I've pretty much done it myself you know production wise and yep. stuff like that um partly due to money partly due to you know well, i have i know what the aesthetic is that's what everyone's doing these days yeah yeah of course you know and the, the idea of thinking about it with the next thing i'm doing the idea of maybe handing it off to somebody else to to mix or whatever it's just like i don't know i don't know you know yeah just getting that balance right it's tough yeah well i mean i've never i've never one one man's polished there's another man's rough and Yes. It's all relative. Well, that's right. It depends how you hear music, you know. It's, yeah. it, it's, uh, it just depends. You can be at the front of hearing a live band and going, why can't you hear that the bass is too loud or whatever? Uh, well, but bass would never be too yes. loud, of course. Of course. <laughs> um, Cut. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's the way they're, that's the way they're hearing it. Um, and that, that's cool. Um, and look, that album, that album, Mousetrap Heart, was uh, it's supposed to be a bit slicker? Like I said, it's more keyboard group based thing, mm. and Matt had had vast experience doing that, and so he knew more than any of us about about doing it. But but look, it also it made made us realise, um, you know, it, it, we almost sort of pushed against that for the the yeah, latest record yeah. slideshows. We came back to Lindsay. And went, we want to do like the first record again, basically. Not yeah. even like the second record, we want to do like the first record. We want to make a rock record again. And we're independent now, so by this time, like everything was, the major kind labels. Like what Metallica were, did. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Without the $40,000 psychiatrist. Where's your that. documentary? That's right. <laughs> and did you get a million dollars to read your That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Right. So after, so, from what I can gather, did did Ray kind of stay out in LA for a little bit? Yeah. So around that time, that? Ray was spending more time in LA yeah. and um, writing stuff for his own solo projects, mm. um, and we were all doing 
other projects, which we do half the year anyway. Yeah, we yeah. don't we don't tour the whole year now like we did back in the old the older days. Yeah. You know, but you still get um, you still get a couple of years. I reckon it's to about two two and a half years from go to wove the start of a recording project to the touring end of the touring cycle. So that's what slide uh, uh, shifting gears was. So we'd come back and, and yeah, Ray was in LA half the year, and we'd we we were just doing these little tours, and we're like, let's let's go and do a new record. And by this stage, we were self managed. Mm-hmm. The label was finished. We'd gotten out of that deal, and um, uh, yeah, the music industry's changing, um, but we have still got new music in us. We're not just you know you yep. know. We don't just want to be playing the the old Australian hits that we have, which we're very fortunate to have. But we've got music in us, and especially when it was no one, you know, telling us to go and write another thirteen demos or something. You know, I was like, no, we we've got enough songs here that that are a picture. We've got, and we sort of did that ourselves. We had you know thirty weird demos or yeah. some some rough some uh, rough piano takes that Ray had just done, and yeah. and then we. Talk to Lindsay about arranging all those. Um, getting off the track there. What did you say before that? <laughs> so Ray was staying in LA, and yeah. my question was going to be: Did you ever, has that ever crossed your mind to to move to over? Move over, or I went over. I mean, I go over every year for something or other, or just to spend a couple of weeks. But New York's my town. I'm a real massive fan of LA. Um, but I like I go there and visit friends, and mm-hmm. it's obviously it's often you have to go there on the plane on the way. Yeah. Maybe not for too much longer. Um, and I, I went to New York three months in 2009, more on a jazz mission at the time, because <laughs> the band was having a, quite a long break at that stage. Yeah. And to be honest, you know, we never, none of us are even sure whether we would get back together. So that was after two albums. That was before Master Apart. And, and then Ray and I had a conversation and we went, let's go and do another record and let's do it in LA and let's do that groove-based record we're talking about, which became Master Apart. Um, so no, I, I've never really... I considered it then, 2009, about mm. moving over, and um, I just I miss the affiliations I have with some bands here. You know, with the guys from House of Orange who were, we were writing yeah. stuff, and it was stuff that didn't sound like anything exactly, completely. You know, and and you can do that anywhere, but I built I built up a rapport with with some musicians here, and and I also love the magic of going to New York for a few weeks a year or going there and doing some gigs yeah. rather than it, it's just it's a hard town it's a struggle yeah. struggle town Ray seems to, to be doing seems to be doing okay yeah well he's based in LA so yeah. that's, a, that's a different thing um, and he like he likes it he likes it. he just feels at home there yeah. you know in as much as home there as he does here so yeah, hmm. yeah New York would be a pretty scary place I think to kind of set up shop and I think yeah Oh, well, it's still magic to go to for a few weeks. And oh, you can totally, leave. yeah. <laughs> yeah, in 10 days or so. Yeah. Know, so many amazing But look, you never say never. You know, it's, uh, I might be there one day. I, I love living in Sydney and I love coming to Melbourne all the time and and then going overseas and then flying back into home, you know. You're going to have your cake and eat it, essentially? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it, cool. it, it is what it is. It's a, um, and, and look, the world's, the world's a smaller place now with that little boxes we have and um, you can you know do what you do and be as and, and be anywhere be of. anywhere in a sense yeah. so. Mm. so what's next for you the next thing is to uh, we're finishing this tour so we're sort of halfway through and it always 
extends out. That's we always sort of get the last years. The pattern has been October, November, December, and then we because of the the way it works, you you're on the radar of the. Um, Australian scene a bit, so you get more things get booked. Okay. So we go through a march or something. I do some jazz things in between. Yeah. Um, and then um, to pay the bills. <laughs> I'm not sure which one pays the bills. Or, <laughs> as such, it's an interesting thing. I, look, I I still love doing both things as long as it's good music with good people. And yeah, I um. I'm doing a lot more writing, like I said, for that piano-based thing. So I'm going to put out another EP or something. Uh, I just put out a single thing called Celebrate Life mm. recently that I just put online. I don't even know how... I mean, I don't even know how to put out music now, really. Like, a lot of people, I'm guessing, you know. So uh, I'm just doing that at, uh, track by track. And I'll, I'm interested to see where that journey takes me musically, you know, mm-hmm. because that's... It's kind of cool. No one's waiting for that, or there's no expectation on that, um, in a sense, yeah. because it's it's my solo stuff. It's not that well known. It's um, it, I don't write it with any sort of you know a commercial audience in mind or a certain demographic or anything. It's yeah. just really is what whatever comes out, and um, and I'm probably putting a bit more jazz in that now than. It's in, that's that's a that's another funny thing, but you know, um, some people have said, "Why don't you play more double bass on stage with me?" Or this, this, and this. And it's like I haven't naturally heard it. Like I can't, I don't want to force anything. That's it doesn't. Getting back to that honesty comment before, mm. you know, I, I've got to get it has to get there organically in its own way for it to be real for me. Yeah. So I'm just getting there a bit with with some of the writing that I'm doing um, based from the piano. And uh, so probably another release of, of, of Phil Stack solo stuff. That's probably what the next thing uh, would be. Um, and eventually I'd like to do the solo double bass record that I've been talking about for ages, you know, because I do a few gigs like that. Solo double bass? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, because depending who you talk to, some people know me as playing with Thirsty Merc who also plays jazz, and then there's all the jazz guys who are like, and you're also in Thirsty Merc, you know, it's the <laughs> other way around for them, you know. Yeah. So, um, so uh, and, and for me, it's just combining combining all of it to be myself wherever, wherever mm. it is. Like I said, that thing before, putting the rock and the jazz and the jazz and the rock for better or worse. So what, what, what would a solo double bass? I mean, with, with looping or just you know, no, just no, kind like, of free flowing. At this stage, for me, it's, I feel it's more um, engaging and challenging to hold a room with just the one instrument, literally. And it's I like, I like yeah doing that. So it's brave. Um, um, yeah, it is. Um, so I haven't put a lot of that out, but I've got recordings of that and. Um, um, I did a little show recently, and I would probably put some of that online. That um, so maybe some content you can use for that. Cool. That's sort of the little motives, the little pieces, um, uh, some of the standards that I just sort of arranged double bass, and yeah. that's the most freeing and actually the most from here on the spot that I can think of is playing double bass solo like that. Yeah. Well, I guess like what we said earlier, you know, if it's your, if it was a singer doing that, you wouldn't think twice. About it being, you know, somebody on stage is just singing. You yeah, go, cool. That's totally normal. But double yeah. bass, you'd be like, yeah, you know. But if it's if it's that directly connected, then it makes sense. You know, that's yep. your 
voice and your expression that's coming through? To be honest, the, the, the things that I hear now writing-wise uh, that I've heard so far in the last <clears throat> 10 years of my, that I, that I know that I think about are two things. They're kind of, it's writing music based on the piano, songs that are songs, vocal songs, mm -hmm. and solo double bass things, motives, pieces, and not really writing for a jazz group or you know, or a bigger rock ensemble. You know, it's sort of those two things. So this is what I hear. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I guess you get that scratch itched by like Thirsty Mark and House of yeah. Orange and stuff like that. You don't necessarily need to, um, you know, that's kind of taken care of. Yeah, that side kind of. of yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. In in in, in good ways, you know. Yeah, in, in great ways. And yeah. it's and I feel just at home doing that. Um, but when it just comes down to me and the, mm. the the most through soul coming out thing of, that I can think of yeah. are those two things, yeah. And the immediate one is the double bass solo thing because it's largely improvised sets. You try not to do them, make them too long. Like a half an hour set is long enough of that. Yeah. So I'll do it on a bill with maybe the second set will be the trio with my sure. jazz trio, which is James Muller and Tim Firth. Um, so sometimes I'd like to do a show like that. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Exciting. Well, I reckon that's the call it a day there. Good. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, thanks very much for digging the time out. Oh, no worries. Um, no worries at all. Great to chat. That's a great thing you're doing. Ah, uh, my pleasure. You know, yeah. I love it. Full stack, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, man. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that little chat there with Phil. Um, you can find out more about Phil and his uh, solo stuff over on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash phil.stack.1. Um, he's got some links to some SoundCloud stuff up there as well. And I uh, also, again, just want to give a thanks to um, F-Bass and Bass Face Strings for supporting the podcast. You can find them at www.fbass.com. Um, there's a website coming very soon for Bass Face Strings, but in the meantime, you can find them on Facebook and on Instagram. Um, thanks for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I really appreciate your support send me an email info at basslessonsmelbourne.com if you've got any suggestions or questions um, and stay tuned for some more great interviews coming very soon thanks